Welcome to another episode of Technicolor Jesus, a podcast where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. In today's episode, Matt and I are rolling with our homies, Jane Austen, Alicia Silverstone, and Amory Heckerling. What's more, we are all wearing plaid. So much plaid. Today, we talk about Amy Heckerling's 1995 movie, Clueless. I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And my name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And if you're new to our show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers. Last time we were together, Matt decided that we had to go and watch Amy Heckerling's Clueless, so that's what we've done. So in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask him to defend his pick. Why does this movie, Clueless, matter for the work of the church? In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Clueless for the lectionary week ahead, which will be year C, May 15th, Pentecost. Finally, after that, we'll offer up some postludes, some theological thoughts from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So Matt, in the early 1990s, Paramount Pictures, which is a sibling of MTV when both companies were owned by Viacom, tasked Amy Heckerling with creating another movie that would attract teens to the theater. Heckerling had gained critical and box office success 13 years earlier with Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and the executives were hoping for another teen coming-of-age hit. In the creation of Clueless, Heckerling turned toward an unlikely source in Jane Austen. Clueless more or less follows the beat of uh, Austen's Emma. Heckerling is also on record as saying that she was trying to conjure the type of attractive likability of Marilyn Monroe in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Jane Austen has famously said of Emma, I'm going to make a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. And so that tension of likability and unlikability is central to the success of the movie. And Heckerling scored by casting Alicia Silverstone, who embodies that tension. Silverstone was most well known at that point for her work in Aerosmith videos, which I remember vividly. Clueless itself as a movie quickly became a success. And in the weird way in which life imitates art, the made-up high school patois of Cher and her friends became common parlance in high schools across the country. Now, Matt, I'm not sure I'm happy that Clueless has become a 1990s cultural touchstone. I hated this movie when it arrived in my life as a teenager who was listening nonstop to Radiohead albums. But that was sort of the point. From this side of the 90s and this side of high school, I find it charming and an interesting piece of confection. So tell me, why this movie? What does Clueless matter for the work of the church? So I probably would have hated this movie too in high school when I was listening to R.E.M. nonstop with like all my grunge t-shirts on. I think we both probably score a little bit closer to that side of this line than the other. Yeah, you well, you grew up in Georgia. Well, I was in Princeton by this point, and as, as <laughs> disaffected an alt-rock as I could possibly be. 
But I think this movie survives as more than 90s cultural touchstone. I mean, it's certainly that, right? But I think it survives also as well-executed romantic comedy. And romantic comedy isn't a genre we've spent a lot of time talking about, and I think it's worth our attention a little bit. Although Clueless is romantic comedy, but I think also with some interesting twists to it. So I want to start with what I think is the center of this film which is the scene in the car with Josh and Cher and Josh's snobby girlfriend, where uh, she quotes the line from Hamlet, to thine own self be true, and the argument ensues between Cher and Josh and her, his girlfriend over who spoke the line. Now, part of this I enjoy because it's bringing out the Shakespearean heart in Clueless, which obviously, yes, is Emma, it's Austin, but... There's a lot of classic Shakespearean comedy in this film. It is taking on some classic right. romantic, some classic comedic tropes. And the, in that kind of Elizabethan sense that you have comedies of misidentity and misdirection, you have comedies of people who are dressed wrong or think that someone's brother is their sister. We're, we're in Twelfth Night. We're in Midsummer Night's Dream. We have comedies of misinformation that kind of come to a head almost by generic form in these moments of authenticity and transparency when at the end of the film or at the end of the play, everybody sees who everybody else really is and, of course, then who they are all really meant to be with. And generally speaking, everyone then at the end gets married. Right. And so there's, there's that, that tension between the person you think is shallow is actually deep. And the person who's supposed to be deep is actually shallow. I mean, and that's part of the Polonius speech, right? Right. Like, Absolutely. I think that's part of, you know, obviously Hamlet's not a comedy, but the line from Polonius is really getting at a lot of the philosophy that undergirds those classic comedies. I don't think it's any coincidence that at the end of this film, when Josh and Cher finally get together, she's just wearing her PJs and they're just working in the house and they're just kind of, quote unquote, being themselves. And so much of the identity formation that I know we're going to talk about is is stripped away in some um, quote-unquote more authentic ways. I think there's, not to jump the gun too much for us here, but there's some Pentecost in this story. I mean, I think part of what I want to do today is highlight some of the connections between Pentecost and these kind of classic comedic beats. That all the disciples, all the Jews in Jerusalem get to speak in their own native languages. For just a moment, they don't have to speak the language of empire. They can be authentic. And by being authentic, they can be in relationship. There's a, there's a comedic resolution to the Pentecost story, that's, and it becomes the language of the church for us, this kind of come-as-you-are language. We want to do this honest work of letting folks be who they authentically are in church relationship. Yeah, I, and I love that idea that there's this comic, that, that the comic part of the gospel shows up. I mean, it, it's, it reminds me of, Beekner's book, Telling the Truth, the Gospel of Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale, where he, he tries to pull up these ideas that like, yeah, no, there's a lot to laugh at here. And his vision of what's funny is uh, or does have a Shakespearean twist, right? Where that which was expected um, surprised us and the unexpected arrived and it was good. So a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to the NPR pop culture uh, podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour, and they're talking about the Mindy Project on Hulu, formerly of Fox, and they're talking about romantic comedies. 
And Audie Cornish made the argument that the romantic comedy lives in the anticipation. That it lives in right. the, the anticipation of this first moment of being in relationship with someone. And then, almost as a generic trope, cuts it off. More so in recent years, but classically, we don't watch romantic comedies that are about the 10 years after the first kiss. And Yeah, we don't call those romantic comedies. Right, right? absolutely. Uh, and... The distinction, so the distinction of Clueless to me here is that it, in some ways, it is living in that anticipation, but it's also got a note of cynicism to it that I think speaks to who we are in relationship in the church as well. I mean, a bit of cynicism, maybe a bit of satire. And again, it's that, to me, it comes back to that scene. To thine own self be true is not actually Hamlet, as Cher points out. It's actually Polonius, who in the play plays the fool, the the wise fool who is able to articulate something, but not through quote-unquote authenticity, but through kind of folly. And maybe Clueless knows a little bit better than some of these other romantic comedies that these romances aren't going to last forever. That, you know, as if, as Cher says at the end, she's only 16, or at least that what we're looking at is just a slice of time and not a mode of being. And I, I think for me in the church, thinking about who we are on Sunday morning and the kinds of open and honest relationships that we say we want to have with each other, the kinds of honest and open lives that we say we want to live in Christian community. There's some helpful notes on both sides of this, encouraging that kind of honesty and also being a, a little wise and folly about how hard and unlikely it actually is. Well, and, and not just that, I, I think I, to, to further the argument, Matt, it's, that the church also can be okay with the comic, letting it be funny without immediately turning to like, okay, what's the long-term ramifications of this? Um, which I see so many churches do, right? Like, it's not just that romantic comedies are anticipating that moment where they finally realize that they're in love. It's often that they have some prior relationship and that you, the audience, know that the relationship is going to turn. And you wait to see how it's going to turn. And, um, and I think that that is an important and helpful model for thinking about transformation, which is the transformation doesn't come immediately. It comes over a long time of being in their relationship, whether it's a relationship of antagonism or a relationship that's sort of like of friendship, like in When Harry Met Sally, for instance. Uh, where something finally happens where they recognize, oh, this is beautiful. And I think you see the same thing in fairy tale, right? Like at the end of the, the story, the good, the good wins over the evil. And part of what like makes Game of Thrones so attractive, as George R. R. Martin has said, is like he was more interested in like how does Aragorn at the end of Lord of the Rings like initiate an effective tax policy over Middle-earth? But that's the type of realism that I think intrudes a little too much in ministry. We want to know like, okay, so how's this going to affect the bottom line without just sitting with the comedy of it and living in that joyful moment. But of course, just because it's comic, Adam, doesn't necessarily mean that it is 
enjoyable to watch or uh, pleasurable or not just so dripping in 90s nostalgia that <laughs> that you can't even like swim through it. So I guess, you know, having know. Ha- I... having picked a movie that you hated 20 years ago, I'm curious to hear from you a little bit about what it felt like to come back 20 years later and whether or not uh, this has anything to say to you or is it just, you know, whatever. Right. So I, I'm glad that you brought up the Shakespeare part because I think that that is such an important um, inspiration for this movie, along with the plotting of Emma and Jane Austen. Uh, the 90s were an interesting time where old stories were repurposed for teen audiences. Uh, I'm also thinking about 10 Things I Hate About You, uh, which well, is an update of The Taping of the Shrew. Or even that, just that Leo Cap- DiCaprio, Romeo and Juliet, which is right. obviously more on the head, but still, yeah. But updated via costume while keeping the Shakespearean language. Yeah, sure. The costume and setting change. Um, it was a moment when these old stories found new life in youth culture. And I think that's possible when you have such great source material. I mean, The Taming of the Shrew, it's Shakespeare. Uh, Emma, it's Jane Austen. Like, these aren't lightweights. These are... These are people who have mined and found something that seems common enough to our human experience that if you were to dress it up in new culture um, and put a new vernacular on it, the story itself can still survive. And so in some ways, when I was watching this movie, I found it enjoyable as an apology for the idea that everything is the same, that each generation is actually more similar to the generation above, despite what the older generation might think. And so we see ideas just getting dressed differently. I mean, literally, I mean, sure. the, the idea of dress and what you wear is such an important part of this movie. And I couldn't help but look at that and think, oh, yeah, the way that the culture dresses, its, dresses itself is, um, is a way to obscure the fact that in many ways it's acting out some of the same cultural scripts from 200 years earlier in the case of Emma or 500 years earlier in the case of Shakespearean and Elizabethan drama. Uh, And so the plot and the story itself still works. And so as I listened to the way that Cher and her friends talked, I hated it. And I think that's also kind of the point right. as an adult, because none of the adults in this movie can understand the kids. Uh, every generation gets to figure out how to express the common experiences of growing up, of falling in love, of having your heart broken, of having sex, of drinking booze. Um, I once owned this this idiom dictionary, and I have no idea where it went. I like lost it in one of the moves I had. Um, and you would look through it, and it would... It would name all of the cultural idioms that we use for common experience. And the ones with the most idioms were, number one, was getting drunk. You know, so there are 500 idioms for getting drunk. You get blasted, you get toasted, uh, you get blottoed, blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't know any of those, and Adam. I'm, second, I'm not familiar. Yeah, I wouldn't. Either. And then the next, the next uh, entry with the most entries was having sex. And then the third is like falling in love. We have all of these idioms because everyone in every generation is trying to find new ways to express a very common experience, a common experience of falling in love in Elizabethan England 
actually is pretty similar to falling in love in Beverly Hills in the 1990s. That those feelings we can assume have some of the same substance. Uh, and so as I think about the church and its current struggles, I think in many ways we're having a, a generational war right now, especially when we see um, the church decline uh, in this country. And I have a lot of people ask me like, okay, so what do we do about it? And they're looking to me ultimately to help them figure out what to do. And increasingly, I've been realizing that looking to me is a really terrible idea, in part because I have so much invested in the church staying the way it is. I've been trained for this particular church. Um, even as it declines, I've been, I only know how this particular church works, what the church of the future is going to look like. I don't know if I'm ready for that. And I'm not ready to totally give up um, my place to inherit leadership in this thing, right? I can't give up all of my earning potential right now. That said, there is this youth culture who's trying to figure out what the church can be. And then there's this culture above us, the baby boomer generation, and they have more expendable income than any generation in the history of the world. And so I think both the sort of millennial, early, late millennial generation and the baby boomer generation are looking to us to try and figure this out when I'm really thinking like, no, you need to talk to each other, right? Like you have all of this money and hopefully you're a little bit like Polonius where you're wise, but you also recognize that you're foolish, Yeah, that you, you actually don't know how all of this works, um, but you have all of the resources and you have time. And then you've got all of these people who are going to inherit this stuff, who do have the energy and who do have the imagination. And it seems like those two getting together would be a much more valuable team than either one hooking up with the people who are in, entering into the power structure of the church currently. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, but I also want to point out the kind of Pentecost roots of the story that we're telling, which if nothing else, um, Pentecost is this moment in the history of the church that declares, as you have declared on Clueless here, that there are old stories that are worth retelling and reincarnating at each moment of the church's life. I mean, the Pentecost story is, in some ways, a, a, a story of translation and adaptation that says, right. you know, these the Babel narrative or the prophecies that foretold the in Joel of this kind of event, they're not just old stories. They they have resonance and translation and they mean something in this new birth of this new generation of the church. And it's in its new meaning and it's gonna mean different things now because of the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And I I I I wanna argue a little bit with you and say that I, I think partially that means that then each generation is going to have a call. As I, as I look at the church, I mean, yeah, we're both in the same place. And I totally am with you that we, I, I am torn the same way where I see energy coming behind me and us and a lot of stagnation in front of me and don't want to let go of my own inheritance, as I think you put it really well. At the same time, I also think that our generation can't just duck and cover out of this one. 
Right, right. No, of course we have responsibility in this that, as well. That, that we, you know, we, we have a we have a call to be the bridge if possible, or figure out what it means for us to live sacrificially, or whatever that's going to look like. I think Pentecost refuses to let people off the hook. I think that's one of the interesting twists of the knife in that story that we can't duck out from underneath it. Well, let me let me put it this way: like I I think maybe that that generation in power is the one that has to be the translator. Yeah. Um, I find this uh, between a lot of the students that I teach um, are are younger than me, and a lot of the uh, my colleagues are older than me, and I constantly find myself saying like, "Oh, here's a translation. Let me tell you where this is coming from or what this person means," because they're speaking in a particular generational patois that you don't understand. So, here, let me help you out. Um, I think that might be our identity here. Um, is is the generational translators that say like, oh, I'm close enough to remember the type of millennial energy that's present, and I'm close enough to recognize that security um, as a uh, as a necessity going forward is a valuable thing, and to be honored among our you know uh, among the generations above us. Yeah. I I think that's a great call. I think if we could live that out, we'd be doing something uh, really well. And I, I'm not sure whether we've given this movie enough credit, but I, I think we've got some more to say as we speak about preaching specifically, and I think we might want to move on. Right, the, let's do it. This next segment is called Preaching to the Choir. So we are looking at the lectionary passages for Pentecost Sunday, and we see the Pentecost passage of Acts, of course, and then it's pairing with the Tower of Babel in Genesis. Lectionary also gives us a, a psalm about sea monsters and a Romans passage about becoming co-heirs with Christ, and then John's gospel where Jesus promises the paraclete, the advocate. There's a lot of options to work with here, Adam. So as you think about Clueless and this text, these texts, where does the, the pulpit take you this week? So as I was watching Clueless, I was reminded of this cultural phenomenon of the makeover. And it shows up in Clueless, and it's not—it's not a unique phenomenon to U.S. culture. The fact that it shows up in Emma in 1815, when Jane Austen uh, published her her novel, means that this is a sort of Western phenomenon. It's—we um, seem to be attracted to the process by which someone is transformed. Sometimes the makeover is. Uh, is totally grotesque. I think in recent years, reality television has taken this to a, a limit that makes me uncomfortable from a moral ethical standpoint. Uh, one show in particular, The Swan, uh, is a show where contestants were given plastic surgery in order that they might conform to the typical beauty standards of the West. And then there was this weird incident on the show where the contestants were not allowed to look at mirrors for something like three months as they had all of this plastic surgery. And then one contestant was kicked off the show because she was caught looking in a mirror. And when I think about the makeover, and I think Clueless is getting to this point, uh, we are really talking about trying to help someone conform to outward standards of upper middle class life. These makeovers are fantasies of class mobility is the argument that I would make. And so I think we also see this in our culture in uh, home makeover shows. Our current culture is obsessed with home ownership. And so home ownership becomes this central symbol of middle class respectability. 
And so we love to see people get the home of their dreams or more specifically the home of the sponsor's dreams. And so they have like these Viking rages and sub-zero fridges and, you know, marble countertops, even though they like never cook and they stain their countertops. Um, well, if you cook, you're just going to get them dirty, Adam. I mean, what's the right. point? Right. You know, and so they, um, there is no sense that the home has some functional purpose. It, it seems to have mostly symbolic purpose in, create, in the creation of someone's identity. And so as I reflect on the, the Pentecost and its sort of uh, initial parallel in Genesis, the, the Tower of Babel, I think the Tower of Babel is a little bit like a makeover show in that people are reaching for something in this very artificial way. They're trying to find something by building an artifice that can help them um, gain it. And so in Babel, they think that they're building something higher will make them actually more like God, as if proximity to the heavens corresponds with godliness. And as I watch Clueless, Clueless is this movie about class distinction. And just like every other movie about high school, um, and just like every other makeover show, uh, I think it's also a story about Babel. In Babel, their oneness, um, in their oneness, they then seek distinction. And the scripture says that you're, they're supposed to seek um, distinction in a sort of horizontal way as they spread out across the earth, but instead they try and spread vertically. And as they spread vertically, they then have to specialize, right? You need brick builders, you need foremen, you need engineers. And this specialization creates further distinction. And one of the beauties of Pentecost is not that it just reverses Babel, but that Babel and Pentecost find some sort of interesting harmony. The distinction of the people are no longer um, a barrier to communication. And so the distinct and the one find some harmony in Pentecost, I would say. So this is my like totally Trinitarian reading <laughs> of like oneness and difference operating at the same time in the church. Uh, what's more, I think... Uh, you see that the disciples and, and going after that, um, that people are receiving these sort of inner makeovers. This is what the church is called sanctification <laughs> and shows uh, like the, these scripture passages show us um, that the, um, that the outward appearance is no indication of a morally upright person. Um and that making over the artifice is not going to give you any indication that you've made over the internal parts. Um, and now I'm just going to connect it to the John passage because I think that that's interesting. So the spirit comes as this reminder to be conformed to the ways of Christ, right? That, that our, our actions, our, our selves, our bodies are being ultimately conformed. Um, it's not just the outside confirmation. There is some sort of internal ways in which um, we are redeemed, resolved, sanctified. So that's what I'm thinking about as, um, as I'm watching Clueless and I'm trying to think, what in the world does Babel, Pentecost, and Beverly Hills have to do with each other? What about you, Matt? Well, I'm, I'm kind of on the same page, and I, I, but I, I've got, I guess, a little bit of a different spin on it, but I think we're talking about some of the same things. Uh, not strictly in the initial Pentecost reading in Acts, but immediately following it and often following it in the lectionary is the, the Pentecost account of the selling of material goods in uh, chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. 
where after hearing the message of Pentecost and after hearing Peter's sermon, the um, disciples uh, gather, they live in one place, they're sharing goods, they're selling those goods off, they're giving the money to the poor, which is, it's not given a huge amount of theological context there in the Acts passage, but it it seems like we're supposed to understand that Pentecost has meant to reorient the human arrangement. And I think you're talking about some of this too, that now that people have heard and understood each other and seen their relationship to the real, to the risen Christ, they, they have new standards of empathy with each other. They take ownership of each other in new ways. And that reorients their arrangement to, to goods and to stuff. Right. I think Clueless is trying to do some of this work and, and, and failing in some interesting ways. I mean, Clueless, as you pointed out, it understands identity by, um, by makeover. It understands identity by brand consumption. The stuff that matters is what you wear and what you listen to. The, the whole crowd that you can't hang with unless you own a BMW. The jacket that can be either James Dean or Jason Priestley. So by purchasing it, you are purchasing some kind of identity. And it's not the first trip around the block for this idea. I mean, Hollywood's been doing this for a long time. But then, of course, you know, Sherry gets her quote-unquote religion at the end, right? She, she comes to this new understanding of herself, that who she wants to be, that she wants to be with Josh. And being with Josh means uh, allowing or shining a light on a kind of different facet of herself, which has been this person who does good in different contexts. But now she's going to reorient that and encourage it fan the flames of it so to speak uh and so she starts giving stuff away right she wants to help with the food drive and the clothes drive that mrs geist is putting on she's bringing uh clothes and skis out of the house so that she can um give it to to the disaster relief victims i think it is uh of pismo beach yeah yeah of pismo beach right uh who you know surely some of those folks own skis and where are they going to get them and there's a you know it's laughable, but also valiant in, in some interesting ways. And on the other hand, this is still a really crassly commercial movie. I mean, the soundtrack to Clueless sold bajillions. Uh, there's lots of product placement. There's lots of Coke and Diet Coke. There's lots of this Nana bottled water brand that I had never heard of. <laughs> and I had to look, fall into a Google hole last night trying to figure out what exclusive right. bottled water uh, had not survived the 20 years since. There's just tons of stuff on the screen for those initial teen audiences to buy and consume. And I'm not at all convinced whether Heckerling's supposed critique of consumerism can make its way through the layers of regular consumerism that are put on top of it, which is part of the problem and part of the tension. So I'm thinking about Pentecost and the Presbyterian Church we take up one of the special offerings that's organized by the denomination is the Pentecost offering. Uh, we take it on Pentecost Sunday or churches that want to take it on Pentecost Sunday. And a lot of that money goes towards uh, funding Presbyterian social justice missions in regards to children and child welfare. And congregations are empowered to spend some of that offering in their own community, working with child agencies in some capacity. Uh, the question is, and I struggle with this as we do our own offerings, is in doing that work of giving something away, are you participating in actual mission or are you just purchasing a missional identity? Like, Are we buying the ability to tell ourselves that we are a church that does this good work or 
are we actually doing good work? And the answer, of course, is both. Um, but I, I think that Pentecost's original story wants to push us into a place where the work we do is relational and the work we do is um, communal and it's humanist and it's not, strictly speaking, um, about the stuff that we can buy for ourselves. Right. So I, I, I mean, I think that that Im, that important dyad of are we purchasing missional identity or are we actually doing mission is a really important one and it, and it is one that shows up in this movie quite a bit because i think i think the movie is trying to make the case that we we're, we're all purchasing identity um that there is a fee to every social circle that we want to enter whether it's um share and her um her vision of of all of the different cliques within high school, or whether it's Josh who has to read Nietzsche and talk about um, interesting erudite college age stuff in order to be a part of whatever group he wants to be, or whether it's um, in our churches, um, we have all sorts of entry fees to our churches that we require before someone even arrives. And so on the one hand, I want to say like, yeah, that's a, just a sort of fact of life. Like we have to purchase our identity with our behavior all of the time. Um, on the other hand, I think it's worth reflecting upon the John passage to ask in what ways is the spirit the thing that helps us um, take that purchase and redeem it um, to not make it crass? Because left in our own hands, it is always self-serving and it is always in our own self-interest to purchase these identities. Um, and all the more reason that we need the spirit in order to help us move from a place that is approaching that sort of altruistic, deeply missional identity that is also authentically giving uh, without regard to ourselves. I mean, here's the point where we could sort of go down the the Derrida rabbit hole of gift, where, you know, he spends 400 pages writing about, like, when is a gift a genuine gift? And without going into that, I think we can say it's a genuine gift when the spirit makes it so. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with you on that reading of John. I, I guess I, I want this movie... Maybe it's not going to do it for me, but I, I what I want is there to be some real estate in this film in between Josh, Josh's reading of Nietzsche as purchased into a certain kind of college ethos, which, by the way, like he's clearly not a Nietzschean. But anyway, the, right. the, I want there to be some real estate between that purchase and the like obscure, the, the obscene um, commercialism that Cher and Dion have to engage in in order to tread water in Beverly Hills. The the ridiculous amounts of um, just basic consumption that they have to do at the Galleria, at the mall, the, the money that goes into that. I mean, I, I think we, what I want is there to be some attention to the nuance of, look, that's just, it's just a lot of dough going out. And couldn't we, wouldn't the world be better aligned if we could, um, at least name the kind of crass capitalism that happens in that context, which is, I think, a little different than a college student who has to read a book to fit in. 
But maybe the movie doesn't want to give me that kind of space. And so maybe you may be reading it better than I do, but I, I guess I'm, I'm articulating my hopes and dreams for it a little bit. Right. I mean, I think, and maybe I'm giving the movie a little too much credit for, you know, having a complex vision of what counts as capital in this world. Um, I think you're right to see this as, um, or to, to lodge a Marxian critique at this saying like, well, that is like money is still really valuable. Um, but I want to say like, yeah, contextually it matters in a movie where everyone has lots of money, then you have to purchase, then you're purchasing identity with other stuff. Um, so you have to have these sort of roots of capital exchange in order to purchase that stuff. Um, I think in our churches, we have our own complex systems of capital and exchange that largely go unreflected or, um, or unexamined uh, because we just think we're doing good things without reflection on what is the good things bringing us. So that type of reflexive move to, um, to think about how we gain from all of this, I think is appropriate without moving us towards a Nietzschean vision of the world, which is all is self-interest. All good right. that we do is not good because ultimately we're doing it because we want to fit in. We want something for ourselves, which poisons everything. I want to say that there's an in-between place right there, too, that where God enters in in the form of the spirit and sort of redeems even our most crass self-interest in the, while we do good. Yeah, I certainly hope. I mean, that's that's exactly where I struggle with our offerings, right? And it's the... Um... I, I certainly hope and believe, as you say, and but and still also reflect like the Sunday after Pentecost, we will put a little line in the bulletin that says, "Last week in our Pentecost offering, we raised three hundred and seventy-two dollars and fourteen cents." Thank you to all of us, to all of those who gave, and the congregation and myself will kind of pat ourselves on the back because last year we only raised three hundred and fifteen dollars, and I don't know how much we think about it in terms of what that money is going to do, and more about the kind of status for ourselves that we purchase as a church by so doing right and it, that i mean that's central to this movie right like Cher doesn't seem to understand that her benevolence is actually meddling with people's lives in adverse ways um and i think that that's a good thing to wrestle with but i think it's now time for our last segment matt this is called postludes and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following so matt what's your postlude um, my postlude is very simple. I want everyone to go to a minor league baseball game. Easy. If, 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 especially if you live in a large city that has a major league baseball team, it's even more important for you to go to a minor league baseball game. Uh, minor league baseball games are the paradigmatic expressions of locality in the United States, precisely because they don't matter. Um, minor league baseball is a, is a hard racket if you're actually a baseball player because the major league will just come and take your talent as soon as it gets good and they will send you their rehab projects. It is very difficult for a minor league baseball team to have a sense of coherence or a sense of collegiality or a sense of team. It's very difficult for them to be in a playoff hunt or to have games that matter. I mean, someone will win the league at the end of the year almost by attrition and default. But there are like five people at a game who actually are watching the game, except in my experience when like the stars come through from the major leagues for a rehab project and then everybody shows up. So in this kind of vacuum of importance, you get all kinds of crazy. And the minor league baseball is all kinds of crazy because they are desperately trying to get people to come out to games that don't really matter that much. 
and so you can go on like big idea night, like the big Star Wars themed night or something like that, which occasionally makes, you know, headlines in Deadspin or something like that. But but I recommend well, even right. avoiding yeah, that. Yeah, the Boston the Boston Red Sox are having their own Star Wars night coming up here pretty Yeah, soon. but that's that's I don't I don't care about the Red Sox. I care about the 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 nobodies. And I I recommend just going on like a Wednesday night for nothing. Someone was probably going to try to give you a ticket to this game. Like if you go to your local grocery store and spend $20 on groceries, someone will probably give you a ticket to the local minor league baseball team. And you will go and you will find like billboards in the um, center field for local businesses like HVAC repairs or some big non-denom church that bought, put a billboard up. And, and I go in Lynchburg to the Lynchburg Hillcats game and the, bill, and the center field is full of church billboards. Uh, you will see the most random kind of human body stunt games in between innings, all your random <laughs> three-legged races and your hat games and every kind of just weird old field day thing you can think of. You'll see I know, your ran- back so many memories of the uh, Trenton Thunder games. Absolutely. Yeah. So. And even the Trenton Thunder, because they're, they're a Yankees farm team. So they get a lot of folks from the city who come down for those games. It is, it is populated by the standards of minor league baseball. Uh, I remember going in, uh, in Cedar Rapids when I lived in Iowa and it was, um, it was amazing because you could walk in for like $4. You could get this amazing giant Iowa sized cheeseburger for like six. It was the cheapest food around and iowa portions which means you could take it home and eat it for a week um and i have no idea who was playing but by the second inning i'm sitting behind home plate because nobody really cares that much the i think the paradigm that we very often throw out as what the experience of local sports or community sports is supposed to be is often high school football or in other contexts it's college basketball but because those games tend to actually be competitive and people care who wins i mean even if your high school football team sucks people care who wins the game Uh, it may be more fun in some context but i think that the real expression of who a place is shows up when actually very little is on the line i mean this is the equivalent of showing up at a church on the 16th sunday of ordinary time when like half the choir is on vacation and the pastor has just come back from vacation but isn't really back yet and still what matters are kind of the relationships and the people and the the sacrality of it that shows up in these kind of, as I said, these kind of vacuums of importance. So please, Matt, have you ever, um, have you ever been to the, like the summer leagues, like the Cape Cod league, or have you ever been to one of those games? I've never been to a summer league game. Uh, Oh, you should check it out. I I think that, that even more so it'll, it'll sort of center this idea. Um, because it is the relationships and the people in part because the teams are all living with actual families in the neighborhoods. Yeah. And they all have like, they work um, at least on the Cape Cod league. Um, I've seen a couple of games out there. They work in like the grocery store and they bag groceries in the morning. And then in the afternoon, they just go and play baseball for four hours. Yeah. I think that would be a really different kind of experience because then you would have a kind of personal connection between the people in the stands and the people on the field that I'm not sure in general you have at most minor league baseball ballparks. I mean, you get a little bit of it. Sure. Between the diehards and the folks on the team who have just managed to stay in one place long enough to build up some, some cred, but for the most part, you have no idea who's on the field. And so the relationships are all horizontal. 
they're all between right. you and the and the the people that you run into and the guy who takes your ticket and the guy who sells the hot dogs and the business leader who in- introduces the national anthem and all this kind of stuff. So that's yeah, and the sport uh, itself, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. But I think it's pretty secondary. I got to be honest with you. I say that as a pretty big really? fan. Really, like but you I, don't you don't have to like baseball. You think you just? I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. I think you have to like baseball if you want to go to a major league game or if you want to go to two. I mean, I think the first one is probably will sell you on spectacle. But I think to become a long term major league fan, you have to like baseball. But to go to a minor league game, I you know we take our we take our kid and he like plays in the bouncy house in the concourse for half the time. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, awesome. That's so, that's, so great. That's, that's what I've got. Please, if you are, especially if you are entering a ministry and trying to learn a place, do not forget to go to the minor league team. And it's, as I've said at the beginning, more important if you live in a big city because the major league games will fool you. You got to find the minor league equivalent in the suburbs and, and find that thing out. That's what I've got. Adam, what about you? Um, I'm still so interested in this minor league idea. I think it's so good. Um. All right. So for me, there are uh, these paintings by an um, American modern artist named Cy Twombly called the Salala paintings. Um, it's, uh, they're mostly abstract depictions of a place. Um, the place, Salala, is a city in Oman, which is on the southeastern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. And, um, and I had been in Oman and came back and was at the Art Institute of Chicago where some of these paintings are held and was sort of stopped dead by them um, because they were reminiscent of something that was very present in my mind. And then I read the, um, I read the title and I thought, wow, this is incredible that this abstract painting, which is largely a green background with some white paint, um, white lettering that isn't actually lettering it's sort of vaguely arabic and vaguely cursive but it's neither of those things um that this abstract painting was invoking an environment in a geographical location in such a profound way and so lately i've been thinking about the ways in which our preaching can invoke the common geography of the congregation um, now, I don't totally understand what I mean by that, um, but I do believe that where we live, not just the culture and the society around us, but the actual physical location um, predisposes us to see the world and to act in very particular ways. Um, and that places, especially big geographical um, landmarks or bodies of water or mountains or plains um, give us particular perspective on the world. Now, we can, like Clueless, learn the vernacular of a place and begin to sort of sound like the place. But can we, as preachers, like Cy Twombly does in these paintings, just by virtue of the sermon, invoke the geographical location so that people know that we understand. This is something that's turning around in my head and I'm trying to figure out how does one do that? And so this week, if you're, if you get a chance, uh, look up the Salala 
paintings by Cy Twombly, you might think that they're ridiculous um, abstract paintings of like some splattered paint, white paint on a green background. But I'm telling you, it somehow is able to invoke a real place. And I don't know how it's done. But I think that there's a, a riddle here for preachers, especially those who are trying to communicate to a group of people who are born and shaped of a very particular place. That's what I got. What do you think about that, Matt? I'm thinking it's so when I came into my congregation in Amherst, which, as I say at the top of the show, is in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, I would take the we'll take the mountains pretty seriously around here. And and I came time for me to do my first funeral was working on the bulletin for it and I went back to look at some previous bulletins and funerals in that church and what I found was that a call to worship that had been structured around Psalm 121 I left my eyes to the hills and I kept digging and you know I'm sure part of this is like preachers who just kind of keep reusing stuff that works but as far back as I could dig in the bulletins that our secretary had on file Every funeral at Amherst Presbyterian Church for like wow. a decade had begun with Psalm 121, I left my eyes to the hills. And I think part of that is the actual text of that psalm, which is certainly among the more beautiful and has a lot of resonance. But I think also part of it is the something about starting the the service of worship with this declaration of Here's, here's where we are, and we are these people, and we are people shaped by this place. It's kind of the, it's the common language, the common theological language and declaration that roots, um, that roots the congregation and the community. Uh, I certainly have not messed with it. I like that psalm, and as far as, as long as I will be here, unless, until some family complains, we will have Psalm 121 at the beginning of every worship service, because I'm not a fool. Anyway, right. Uh, it, well, and I think it's it, it really serves as, I mean, you invoke God, but you also invoke the place, right. the land, too. Yeah. And, and that's that makes a lot of sense. So that, that's a great story. If you have other stories like that, um, I'd love to hear them because this is a this is a, a tricky riddle that I'm trying to figure out for my own research. Well, anyone who does can come on our Facebook page and uh, tell us a good story and we'll look forward to reading them. But that about wraps it up for this episode, Adam. But we are not quite done yet. I got to pick Clueless this week and torture Adam with it a little bit. So Adam's now on the clock. Adam, next week is Trinity Sunday. What do you have in store for us? All right. So I got a question for you, Matt. Uh, what are what? Just name a few of your favorite westerns. Oh man. Okay. Uh, Unforgiven is up there. Man, right. Man, has to be. Man who shot Liberty Valance is my dark mm-hmm. horse pick um, for John Ford's best. And then, I don't know, somewhere, one of the classic Eastwoods, I'm not sure where I would go, probably Fistful. Those would be my three. Really? So you Man Who Shot Liberty Balance over the searchers? Yeah, I actually do. I think Man Who Shot Liberty Balance is a brilliant uh, signpost of the end of the Western genre or the classical Western genre. I think it's an undervalued film and a a masterpiece. Uh, And I think searchers... Maybe I just had to watch it too many times. I don't know. I'm kind of done. Right. So so the Western is this, I mean, it's almost quintessentially American. Uh, it 
tells the story of this frontier experience of America. And, and, and it lifts up so much of sort of American ideas of liberty, uh, American ideas of individuality, and the sort of frontier mindset. Um, I also think that sometimes the most local uh, movies are best refracted from a foreign voice. That um, that you need an outsider to help you see the particular nuance of a particular genre. And so um, we're going to watch a Western that's not really a Western. Uh, and it's by one of the keenest minds, I think, in the history of cinema. So I want us this week to go watch uh, Yojimbo by Kurosawa. All right. And... Um, and look at the ways in which Kurosawa refracts American ideas of liberty, of goodness and evil, um, and how, again, how identity might be made in the midst of, um, of duty and honor. And so uh, I think Kurosawa, uh, more than anybody, can take Western texts and filter them through uh, an Eastern lens and help us see what we ourselves have been missing. So this week, we're going to go watch Yojimbo. Um, and it also s starts Mifuni, who is probably in the top three actors um, that I love category. So um, so that's what we're going to watch. So that's uh, that's it for us today. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. If you don't like it, come and tell us on our Facebook page or uh, on our website. Every little bit helps, and we want to continue the conversation that we started here with all of you who are listening. So come and find us. All right, Matt, that wraps it up for today. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam.